Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a talent marketplace that enables biotechs to build world-class teams while keeping fixed costs low. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm finally excited to welcome Mark Litton, President and CEO at Athera Pharma. Great to have you on today, Mark. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Roro. Great. So, Mark, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about how initially you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and then how you got to where you are today. Sure. So it really started with my passion for science, and that was really in college. And I majored in biochemistry, always had this passion for medicine and the reasons why. And right out of college, early 90s, I took a job at a biotech. And it was your typical startup biotech where they didn't have a lot of cash. And I remember the CEO coming out and saying, okay, well, we can't really pay you this month but we're going to give you some stuff. I said to myself, that's kind of crazy. So then I went for work for another more stable, big company where it was big farm at the time that had a basic research. And so I was a scientist there. It was in the Bay Area that I was like, oh, I got to start my own bias. This is really cool. At the same time, while I was working, I got my MBA. It was really interesting. I was meeting with people that were starting biotechs and I thought I'm 20 something. I've now got my MBA and I'm going to start my own bot. And one of my mentors said to me, Hey, you know what? Why don't you go get your PhD? Why don't you get a little bit more depth in your science? And so I actually took an offer where pharmacy had paid for my PhD and I went to Stockholm. So I got my PhD in immunology. And that really was one of the best advice because I learned really in depth about science and it gave me a lot more credibility than just having my MBA is a good foundation, but having both of it was really helpful. Then I had to move back from Stockholm to the US and that was sort of challenging, but I decided I wanted to go into business development. And so my career began really in business development and I got so excited by doing deals. The fact that you could start with some really cool technology, find a big partnership, raise a lot of money, just got me excited. I was then working at a big British biotech company in business development. I was running BD for states for them. And we got laid off, my colleagues and I. And this was like 2003. There's four of us and we said, you know what? We can start our own biotech. We can do this. And we started a company called Alder. And Alder was an antibody therapeutics company. We had two products out of Alder. One that is approved today by FD, which is a migrant prevention drug. And Alder was one of the first companies to show that blocking CGRP, this calcitonin gene-related peptide, can prevent migrants. Unfortunately, Alder was against some really big players, Teva, Amgen, Lilly, just to say the least. But we persevered. I think I left in 2018, but Alder got acquired by Lodbeck for about $2 billion. But that 14 years, I've learned so much about people creating culture, what's really important, raising money. We raised over a billion dollars at Alder because it takes a lot of capital to get through that. And then another mentor of mine 
Tachiyama, I was sort of sitting around and I was saying, what do I do next? And he introduced me to Athera. And I joined Athera to help them raise money. And roughly in about six months, we raised approximately 400 million for what we're doing. Now, Athera has a really interesting, and we'll get into this, science behind it. So raising the money wasn't that difficult. And it was a time where it was one of those good cycles where we were able to raise capital. But I'm truly thankful today that we raised 400 million because we wouldn't be around today if we had not raised the four. Great. Thanks, Mark. And looking forward to chatting more about Athera. Before we get there, I believe Athera is the first time that you're in the CEO seat. I know you founded companies previously, but now that you've been in the CEO seat, Wondering if there was a non-obvious learning that you weren't expecting when you took that CEO role that you'd like to share with any of our listeners. I joined Ethereum just to help raise money. I did not join to be the CEO. I was then asked to step in as the CEO a couple of years ago. And it in like being in the CEO. The things you learn and the pressures and the responsibilities and literally on an hourly basis things I wrestle with were not really what I had sort of found before. And it really gets down to how do we make sure that we're all focused and the right people doing the right things, we're saving the money and making sure that we get the inflection points that we need. I sort of consider myself as a coach and that I remind folks that it's not really about me. We're all in this to really accomplish such an important mission. So I really am that coach. I've gone through a proxy, having my name (laughs) strode through the mud. But when you have that humbling experience, you know that it really is about. This is about our mission. And this is about showing that our drugs are going to work. And you mentioned value inflection points. So we're recording this in the summer of 2023. Times have certainly changed over the last couple of years in terms of the capital markets and overall just the biotech ecosystem and our ability to raise capital for companies. I'd love if you could walk us through how you think the landscape has changed over the last couple of years and perhaps how that's informing how you're operating now. We go through cycles. Now, let's just be clear. It takes approximately 10 years from discovering a drug to getting approved. So 10 years is a long time. And in that cycle, there will be times where the market is easier to raise money. And then there'll be times where the funds have dried. But one should understand, if you think about our industry, right? And you think about how the money flows down. It starts with big pharma. And let's just be honest, it does. They're the ones that sell... They're the ones that are in desperate need of innovative medicines, and then they buy companies. So M&A is a huge driver in the... And it's been very clear that big pharma is really... What they do well is sell drugs. What they need is people coming up with really cool drugs, and that's where biotech comes Now, then there's, okay, well, you have your venture capitalists. So when you're starting your company, they're a source of funding. But it's all sort of tied to, we start with the M&A, and then how well is Wall Street doing biotech? Are the big funds investing in biotech? And when those big funds sort of dry up, when the interest rate is high, biotech is a risky investment, then they can go buy T-bills and have a sure investment as opposed to a high-risky biotech. And this happens all the time. But we have to remember that it's those big funds 
that help when you go public and help bring up the biotech thing. There's M&A, there's the street, and then there's the venture capitalists on the private side. But they're all connected. And unfortunately, when things start drying up, everybody has a part-time reason. And it really is a trickle-down effect. And we've seen that in the last 24 months. Yeah. And so nowadays, as folks think about fundraising, I think the goalposts may have changed a bit in terms of what are expectations of when biotechs should be raising. I'd love if you could walk us through what are some of those value inflection points and how you think about value inflection points as it relates to timing of a fundraise. Everything that we do is all about our clinical data. I say clinical data, not preclinical data, clinical data. And that's the true inflection point where you have a well-powered, established trial in patients and you now can show that your drug is both hopefully safe and effective. But that's just your sort of proof of concept and how much money do you need to get there? And I think one of the issues is as funds are coming in and they want to invest and it's really, really good, people get funded on the preclinical side and it takes a long time to actually manufacture the drug, go through the proper toxicology, make sure that you set up your clinical trial the right way. And all of that takes time. But you have to make sure that you raise enough money and have enough time to get that clinical date in the end. And Mark, taking that a step further now, and obviously we're talking about kind of external fundraising strategy. How have you found that communicating these inflection points to the team are most effective for those folks on our team that perhaps haven't been involved in fundraising cycles and value creation at biotechs. Wondering if you could share some advice around best practices for how to communicate this to your team so they get it. Really good question. Because as you build your biotech, you really want experienced folks. And a lot of those experienced folks are coming from big farm. And they don't really understand the game that we're playing or the sandbox or how we're going to say, here's the rules. We have this amount of capital. We have this amount of time and we have to come up with clinical data. And one of the things that we're trying to do, if this is a, always a work in progress, is to be as transparent as possible, be very clear. Here's what we're trying to achieve and then create a culture that people can then share and be honest. This could be a speed bump. My experience is, oh, when I did X and Y, it didn't work. You know, let's think about that. So it's understanding and being clear about the playing field and then really creating an environment and culture to listen to this experience. And then you're combining it with folks that are really excited and they're young and they've never done this before. And they're also helpful. But I thought that just trying to over communicate, I think and be as transparent as possible what we're trying Mm. to achieve. Great. And given your background coming from holding a couple of roles on the BD side, curious how you think about BD in this particular environment and your approach to partnership and so on right now? Great question. I think in this environment, BD is a strategy that can help. It's one of your options. You should never ignore that. But I think one should be careful about the type of deals that are done and the reason they're done in this environment, meaning the there's always a call, right? There's always a call as to whether you're partnering, whether you're raising money, and 
my philosophy has been one should use partnerships to help be successful getting these products to marketplace because there are gaps that the small company can just not do. But in this environment, one just needs to be careful. And to be frank, there are moments where you just have to do a deal that might not be the most optimal deal because that's where the market forces. But I always try to, to approach it as without emotion and just to assess if we had all the capital in the world, what would we do? And if we had every resource, what would we do? And then you sort of come up with a, hey, here's our gap. There's gap in capital and there's gap in this resource. And that's where I think partnerships can be very helpful. Thanks, Mark. Now, switching gears a bit, you know, we talked about how you've been CEO for a couple of years now at Athera. And certainly stepping into that role is a shift. I'm coming from a place where I'm a first-time CEO as well. was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that emotional aspect of being a CEO and how you've been handling that and what advice you would provide to others that are in a similar position. So my rule to myself, I'm absolutely very passionate about things. And I try to, as best I can, remove that emotion. I use it in a good way. I'm absolutely passionate about helping people with Alzheimer's. I'm absolutely passionate about our, the potential of our drug with ALS. And that's a good emotion. When there is a manufacturing issue or there's something, I try to be less emotional because I don't think that's very helpful. The other thing that as a first-time CEO is making sure that the people around me are also really good leaders. Thankfully, I have some really good leaders surrounding myself. And collectively, we have been able to solve some difficult problems. Mark, you already talked a little bit about Alzheimer's. So I'd love to hear your perspective on the CNS space across biotech right now and where you see unmet need in a particular patient population and then obviously what you all are doing about it. First and foremost, there is a tremendous need in neurodegeneration uh, in CNS. And I love in the last few months, we've been seeing the space get the highlight that it really needs because it really needs some big players to help solve this. The biggest unmet need in neurodegeneration is Alzheimer's. I know everybody sort of knows this, but it's astounding. There are 6.5 million patients in the U.S. that have Alzheimer's. 55 million globally. The other statistic that always hits me is essentially one in three in the U.S. from some form of dementia. The cost to this in the U.S. alone is hundreds of billions of dollars. So while we have made strides, we are just scratching the surface and there is a huge admit need to have new therapies. Now, we're very excited for these companies that have the antibodies that are removing the plaques. This is Esai and Lilly, but we really think that's just the first step. And so you, you remove the plaque. And at Vera, our approach is really, we're more on how can we protect and stop that neurodegeneration and repair the nerves. And that's really, we're using a natural repair mechanism to absolutely enhance the repairing of these nerve cells and hopefully show benefit in patients. Let's talk a little bit about now where you are from a development perspective and any potential readouts you have coming out. Yeah, to highlight the repair mechanism, this is HGF system. This is the system that our body uses every day to repair our nerve cells. It's been shown to be vital. We have a molecule that you give that's called phosgonimintin or phosgo that is given daily by subcutaneous injection. 
It gets to the brain and it enhances this repair mechanism. And we've run several trials, now albeit small numbers, but we've seen descriptively improvement in cognition, independence and function, and an assortment of biomarkers that have shown improvement. And so where we are right now, we are recruiting our late stage LIF AD trial, and we're hopeful to have data in 2024. That's great. You brought up biomarkers. I'm curious how you're currently using biomarkers. And also, if we fast forward, let's say 10 to 20 years, what role you think biomarkers can play across biotech development? We're still in the early stages. So our industry on a whole is really heading in the direction of biomarkers. How can we measure something in the serum or in the skin that can indicate how well our therapies are doing or how severe the disease is occurring? We are making strides on these biomarkers. Perfect example is A-beta, right? That we now have antibodies that reduce A-beta. Phosphorylated tau, which is the tangled protein inside the cell, it's also another biomarker that's getting a lot of play. And the biomarker that we also like, a marker that measures neurodegeneration, and it's this neurofilament light, or NFL. And recently this year, we saw a drug get approved. Biogen's drug, Tofersten, got approved based on reduction of NFL. So we're learning a lot by biomarkers. There's still a lot to do. And it takes tremendous amount of resources industry-wide to focus on biomarkers, standards, how are we testing them? How does that relate to disease settings? And that unfortunately takes time, but we're heading in the right direction. And I really believe that's sort of where medicine is going, that we will be just analyzing it on a daily basis. One of the topics we had chatted about prior to recording was the importance of culture to build high-performance teams. And I'd love to hear your perspective now, given all that you have achieved and been exposed to, what strong culture within an early-stage high-growth biotech looks like? I can't stress enough. It's all about people, first of all, and getting experienced people and people that work well together, that share the same mission. It's creating an environment that encourages collaboration and communication. I think that's something it's really important to have a seasoned HR executive on. We are very fortunate to have one and it makes all the difference because you put in place processes to help build that culture because culture just doesn't happen overnight. And putting these processes in place allows us to measure over time, which we do at Thera, and it allows us to correct and focus on areas where we're lacking so that we can increase better collaboration and create a culture that we all want to be a part of. But it's all about the people. I'm curious now, in terms of measuring some of the impact that processes and so on are having, curious how you're measuring that now. We brought in a group to do it. We surveyed the entire company. And it had various areas to see, okay, well, I mean, one of the things that came out that was loud and clear is how central the mission is to everything. Loud and clear. Everybody agreed with the mission and felt that's the reason there. So at least that's great. We can share with that. One of the areas that we're working on just to share is cross-functional teams and putting in place processes on how we can interact better cross-functional got the results, and we're acting on the results. That's great, Mark. And adjacently related to this topic now around culture and people, 
is overall just mentorship. And I think you and I have chatted a little bit about this, where for the most part, building better leaders isn't really a big area of focus for most biotechs, but it's one that you're really passionate about. And I'd love if you could articulate, one, why that's so important to you, and two, the impact that you've had on focusing on some of these things yeah, to performance at Athera. It comes from just this philosophy of paying it forward. In my career, I've been very fortunate to have some wonderful mentors that have helped me every step of the way. And again, as you're building this biotech, this is a mixture of bringing in really seasoned people, but we really want to instill a culture of mentoring and paying it forward and teaching folks those experiences. Instead of saying, this is how it's done. It's like, let me share with you my experiences so that you can learn and understand what I am. And so we've done that in many different instances. We have student interns that come on board. We encourage when we're hiring people that we want to hire people that are going to pay it forward. And it really starts for me just to share. The only reason I'm at Ethereum is to pay it forward. I was like, look, I have this experience. I'm pretty good at raising money. I will come in and help. And so I'm paying it forward. And we're not perfect, just to share. Like this is a daily work in progress, but it is something that I'm very passionate about. And I think as an industry, we should remember that paying it forward is so important. That's a great point, Mark. You mentioned raising capital. How has your approach to raising capital evolved over time? You know, you mentioned you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars now. Curious what, you know, the first time it looked like when you were trying to raise capital and how you approach that process now. First of all, it's painful every single time. It's painful, but I think you're never sad that you raise money. So I do think having a very pragmatic approach to what you're going to do with capital and saying, okay, I need X to get me Y and being able to communicate that is essential. And then the philosophy of if I think I need X, and you have the ability to take a little bit more, take a little bit more. That's my advice. For example, here is, is, a, is a really good example. We did our crossover. We went public. We had raised about 300. We had the ability to raise another 100 million to give us the resources to do our next molecule. And we made the decision to raise that 100 million. And that 100 million is absolutely vital to why we're and for those folks that have not had to raise before, haven't been as successful with regards to raising capital, I was wondering if you could share your mindset going into a fundraise and things that folks perhaps might want to include as they get into the right mindset, because it is never easy. So certainly agree with that. So let me state for the record. So when we raised our first capital with Walter, it took us 18 months. I was without a salary for 18 months. I had to step on a second kid. And my wife's like, what are we doing? So you have, it's not from the faint hearted and you have to have tremendous belief in what you're doing and you have to be optimistic. You have to have the ability to keep hearing no, no, no. And then you have that one meeting where they're like, this is kind of cool. And it's that one meet that you go, we're going to get there. Even if you don't get there, you're going to get there. And so you just have to be persistent and to believe in what you're doing and then capitalize. When you get that one group that's interested, that's when you sort of bring everything together. The other thing is trying to get to a clear answer. Is that group really interested? Because you spend a lot of time, and I did it in my eight months, right? Of, oh, yes. It's yes, yes, yes. 
but they're never investing. And so having folks that can go, because you can always network to say, hey, would you mind calling this group and just saying, are they in or out? Because I don't know what's going on. And then having that is so important so that you can prioritize what you're doing because too often it's, oh, yes, we're in, we're in but they're not. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I'm always curious to hear how folks have evolved in terms of fundraising and just getting into that right mindset when you are trying to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, raising yeah. that 11 million is no different than raising. No mm-hmm. different. It's the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to have the same passion and persistence. Now, Mark, you've certainly seen a lot across your career. And during that time, there's been lots of innovation over the years, whether it be evolution, new treatment modalities, precision approach to therapeutics, even the application of software to address a whole host of inefficiencies. As we think about the next one to two decades, from your perspective, what are some kind of longstanding inefficiencies that you think are still not being addressed that are holding drug development back currently? Well, it's really focusing on, go back to the biomarker aspect. How can we efficiently understand whether our not our therapies are working and do that. You know, a lot of times as we're doing these clinical measurements, it's not so clear. And the variability of these measurements is really difficult in, in certain areas. CNS is a great example when you talk about depression or schizophrenia, where you have a very high placebo effect. And how do you know that your drug is working? It becomes really important in the next 10 to 20 years is to understand the mechanisms of what we're doing, which we're doing a really good job of. But being able to measure that and being able to measure it in a very efficient manner. And I do believe in the next sort of 10 to 20 years, the iPhone that we have today will be somewhere on our body and it will be calculating on a daily basis. What is our cholesterol? What is our blah, 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 and will absolutely help us with our clinical trials and creating better medicines because it has to be more efficient. We have to be able to run trials a bit more efficient. Agreed. This is coming from a place of naivety. I've never been involved in a clinical trial in CNS, but what are some of the challenges in execution of clinical programs that are of specific nuanced challenges to a CNS population? I think it's really making sure that you have the right patients. And that's really, really vital, especially in CNS, where a lot of these diseases, Alzheimer's being a a good example, that this is a disease of 15 years. And some people advance more rapidly, others don't advance at all. This is not common for Alzheimer's, let's be clear. And so what we need to ensure is that we have the right patient for what we're studying and to understand that that, because most of our trials right around the placebo, that's how we're measured, is that placebo. So we want to make sure that we understand a population where there is a change that occurs in the placebo. So that you can see a difference. And for Alzheimer's, that's what's so important. When we are getting our patients into our trial, we want to make sure that the right patients, the right time and frame. So we spend a lot of time. But that's not just Alzheimer's, that's Alzheimer's too. Mark, before we let you run, would ask you to reflect for one more minute. Given all that you've seen across your career and all that you've achieved, looking back now, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? knowing all that you now know and have experienced? Well, I think the advice that I would give myself is that everything works out in the end, that you have the tools, you have the people experience, and you can solve it. And too often we get in tons, and biotech is really ripe for this, 
these moments where you're like, and you just have to take a step back. It is solvable. We will get through this. In the end, we are making a difference for these patients. And it's so important with what we're doing. And I wouldn't do anything else. Uh, well, Mark, on that inspiring note, thanks for joining us today. Wishing you and your colleagues at Athera continued success as you work on these very meaningful therapies in a patient population that certainly has lots of unmet needs. So it was great to have you on. Thanks for sharing your story. Raul, thank you for doing this. This is such a, an important thing to have these podcasts and to share them. So I just want yeah. to thank you for that. Thank, thank you, Mark. We're only as good as the folks within biotech that are willing to come on here. So really appreciate you and your time as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.